from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressions your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise.
Lord. Indeed, we were born in iniquity. Lord, our very nature was that of rebellion against you. And yet you loved us. You sent your son to die for us, to bear the wrath as we so rightly deserved. Lord, so we could be assured that those times that we sin, that we fall short, Lord, that you will restore to us the joy of our salvation. Mm-hmm. And it's ours purchased by the blood of Christ Jesus. And we can rest confidently and assured in that. And we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit that you've given to us, Lord, that you sent when Christ ascended into heaven. For you said it would be better if Christ would ascend and the Spirit would come and be our comforter and our counselor and our keeper. So, Lord, we pray now that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would indeed, Lord, draw to us in the presence of Christ, that we could truly say, Christ in us, the hope of glory. As we come before your very word, the Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and transform us. Mm -hmm. Lord, that we know that as we come before these words, we are dealing with God, very God. Lord, I pray that you would sanctify us, save us in this moment, God. We thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 10. I'll be focusing on verses 9 through 11 this morning, but uh, go back to verse 1 as we uh, bring it together, uh, or uh, well, actually just verse 5 as we bring it together this morning. Uh, so uh, the message of salvation to all, according to is what the uh, uh, New English version, or the English Standard Version here has uh, as a title for it: the message of salvation for all. But the focus, interestingly enough, is more on the idea of, of Paul speaking about the, the nation of Israel. Uh, they have refused to follow after God's way of doing things. And you know, this is nothing new for them. Uh, in Hebrews, it talks about uh, how they have done it. You know, he, he reflects back... Uh, the author of Hebrews reflects back to the Jews before the Exodus and, and, and how many times, or during the Exodus, how many times they had uh, re, uh, moved away from God. In other words, they would see a miracle, they would see what God had done, they'd see a blessing that God had brought out, and then as soon as the next trial came along, they'd say, oh my goodness, are we in trouble? And they, they would miss the, the, the very essence of what God was doing with them and for them. And the ultimate uh, turn down was, was to refuse to go into the promised land because of the giants in the land and the fear of defeat. And God was planning to clear the, the road ahead of them. They weren't even going to have to do battle. He was going to clear it out for them. But they said, no, it's, it's too risky. It's too dangerous. We can't see our way through. And, and God said over and over and over again, I've come up against this. And their cry was, normally, send us back to Egypt. And this time they cried out, well, just uh, it'd be better that we perished in the desert than to face this terrible situation that looks ahead of us. And, and God gave them their prayer, basically. Uh, they, they perished in the desert, uh, that whole generation. And so this, uh, this 
failing to see what God has put right before their eyes is nothing new. But as I was thinking about that, I realized how true that is of me. Let alone, you know, all of us together, but, you know, just looking around and, and, and uh, not having the confidence sometimes uh, of knowing that in the midst of everything that we see that could possibly be wrong, and if we want to, we can make a, a, a list very quickly, whether you want to go into politics or you want to go into morality issues or whatever you want to do, it's really easy to make a list. And yet, in the midst of that, we're supposed to realize that God and His sovereignty, this is no surprise to Him. His purpose is going to unfold and complete in the sense of His plan, and nothing is going to thwart that. And that as we rest in that, we can rest with confidence that He has got things under control. Are we to be prudent and do the things that we know are right? Absolutely. Somebody asked me the other day, what difference does it make if you vote or not, if it's God's sovereignty? I said, because there's a prudent call on our part to, to exercise what God has given to us, what other people would cherish if they could just get a glimpse of, and, and, and honor that and, and vote our conscience. And, and uh, what a privilege that is to be able to do that. So there's a prudent thing within the framework of that. And God uses us to bring about His plan. He expects us to do our part as well. But not that He needs it, but that He wants to embrace us into the unfolding of His plan and the revealing of His plan and to make it a part of, uh, you know, a participant in it. What amazing thing. Have you ever thought about that? God has invited us to participate with Him in unfolding His plan for the generations. So I just wanted to encourage you, you know, as, as we go into this, you know, this was the problem with the Hebrew people, and like I said, it, it spills over into today uh, in the church today as well, uh, is not resting in God's promises. And I have to tell you, I was so lifted up by Jackie's simple prayer and praise. And it just it really impressed me to think, gosh, you know, I'm so glad I've only got a cataract. Yeah? And I thought a lot about that and realized uh, as uh, I was looking around, of all that I have, and compare it to the rest of the world. And I'm a spoiled person. I really am. And not as thankful as I need to be. They also, though, they were seeking, they did want, in all honesty, in all sincerity, I do believe, in general, the Hebrew people wanted to please God. I do believe that was their desire. But what has happened in, their, in the time of, of uh, over and over again was that through teaching they got so caught up in trying to work to please God that they didn't realize that the one thing that God wanted was what was just shared with us in Psalm 51. A broken heart over sin. Not just a solution, not just a, uh, a going through the motions of, of, of bringing the offering and all of the things that they might do, but, but to have a sincerely broken heart over sin. And to understand that without the broken heart, that the offering was worthless. And that's said in, 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 by David in the Psalms. It's also said by Hosea and others. God doesn't want an offering for, first. He wants a broken heart. The offering is a reflection of, of needing a Savior and God's cleansing. And so, the Hebrew people get sidetracked and into, well, we're, we're, we're doing our Sabbath duty. 
uh, and and we're, we're we're tithing and and we're doing all these things that we are doing correctly. In fact, we're even doing above and beyond because we've got a whole perimeter set of rules that we're keeping in addition to that. And so we're really doing it right. And they missed the whole concept of faith. But Paul wants to make it clear here in chapter 10 that that the, the, the idea of what God wants isn't obscure. It isn't hidden. It's not something that they have to, 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 to go into the heavens or into, into the depths of the earth to try to find, but that it's right before their eyes. If they will only do what? And I realize the, the phrase that we used even last week is to seek Him. That with all the sincerity of a person who is brokenhearted over sin and wanting God's blessing and grace on their lives, to seek His face for His forgiveness, His mercy, His grace, and to want to... To, to please Him, but to do so in the sense of how we receive His answer to our problems, which is Jesus Christ. That's how we please God. That's where it begins. We cannot please, please Him without coming through Christ. And so, He, he writes to us very, very clearly. For Moses writes about the, the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that the God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. So picking up here where I left off last week, really starting with verse 9, but I'm going to go back to verse 8. It says, but what shall, does, does the Word of God say about His plan and, and salvation? He says, it's near you. The Word is near you. It's, it, it is right there. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Implied here, if you have received our teaching, it's, it's in your mouth and in your heart. The Word is near you. There should be no difficulty in knowing the way of salvation. And therefore, no excuses. It's in you. It's around you. If you have received our teachings. Because, and again, it's implied here, I think at this point, if you've received our teachings, you will be saved if you do what? Confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. Now, there's some added things to that, but I'm just going to... The, the idea is that this is something that comes from inside and is verbalized. It's something that is not... It, it's confessed. Jesus makes a, a really strong statement about this in reference to... He says, if, if you're not going to confess me before men, I'm not going to confess you before my Father. This doesn't mean we go out and beat people over the head and say, you know, uh, you know, you know you're going to hell or, or whatever. Although there may even be a time and a place for that. 
And if somebody, you know, I had somebody make a comment about being in a, in, a, in a metropolitan area just a few weeks ago and there was a street corner preacher and they were so embarrassed by it. And I thought, no, yeah, I said, you know, I, I imagine there were some people embarrassed by John the Baptist too. Uh, there are times where God calls people to stand on the street corner. And Paul, uh, John the Baptist, think of where he stood, right outside the palace of Herod and, and conf- pointed his finger very directly towards him in his sins. So I'm not saying that that's a, a wrong thing to do, but generally speaking, the idea of confessing is, is that we're, we're not ashamed of who we are. Are you proud, if you will, to boast if, in Christ and what He's done for you? We're not ashamed of who we are. We're not ashamed of the Gospel message. And so we're, we're, we desire to confess with our mouth, and to believe in our heart. And what is it that we confess? Well, we confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is a loaded statement by itself. It is so massive. It's not just to say, oh, Jesus is Lord. Because when Paul makes these statements, he doesn't make them lightly, and he encompasses all that that implies in addition to just the phrase. In other words, we can go around just saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and have no value or meaning in it in depth. But the idea here is to, to confess Jesus is Lord is, is a, a far, it's a, it's a very big thing to do here, I think, and, and to encompass, and we'll look at it. And then he says, to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We're to believe. So there's the foundational thing, raised Him from the dead and to confess Him as our Lord. So saving faith is Paul's focus right here for as we look at these verses. What does a Christian believe? Uh, it's, uh, what makes us a Christian, I guess you might say. And there's a lot of things that people want to put into this formula, but I think it's, it's, it's fairly basic. He begins with the, 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 the broad statement, Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. So Jesus is very clearly at the center of our salvation. It's, it, he is the, the focal point, if you will. Leave him out, and there is no Christianity. That seems like it shouldn't have to be said, because the word Christianity has is the very the very nature of the word is to is follower of Christ in a sense. His name is right there, in the midst of it, Christianity. But I will suggest to you this morning that there's a lot of people that, that, that wear the name Christian and Christianity, if you will, as their, as their label, who are not confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul gives us very clearly this picture that Jesus is the, the focal point. And we have to understand Jesus is a historical person. He, it's a physical fact that He existed that he lived out his life, his teachings and his, his miracles, all the things that he did, and died on the cross. And that there is an empty tomb that represents that he is risen. But the question still needs to be looked at carefully. Who he, who he is, what happened to him in his lifetime, and why did he do the things that he did. 
to say Jesus is Lord is a, is a statement about his, his person, about who he is. And not just that we are going to submit to him and see him as Lord. That's one side of this picture. But to recognize him as who he is and that he deserves the term Lord. Paul gives us a picture, I think, that is, is, is good to look at here for this in, in Colossians chapter 1. It starts with verse 15. Paul writes to the Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by the way referring to Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. The idea to be preeminent there is to be the Lord of all things. Okay, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The first thing that I see that Paul is pointing to us here is the deity of Christ. It's one of the things that he makes clear in this passage. He is the very image of the invisible God. I say it over and over again, but the, 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 the statement of Jesus was absolutely clear. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. John 1.18 says that he is the physical representation of God. He is the revelation. You know, if you see him, you see the Father. He is God in the flesh. The very image of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that He is the radiance of God. Meaning the light of God. Isn't that what John tells us in John chapter 1 through chapter, and into chapter 3? The light came into the world. You know, he is the light of he is, he is the life and the light of men. He is he is the, the 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 physical representation of God. He is the light, the radiance of God. And and Hebrews also uses the phrase the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature is an interesting phrase, isn't it? To think, you know, God in the, it has to be at this point God in the flesh to be the exact imprint of His nature because that makes Him perfect. And only God is perfect. And so Paul is expressing the deity. The Hebrew author is expressing the deity. John expresses his deity in verses that are very familiar to us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Not a God. Was God. Period. Verse 19 of, of, uh, of Colossians also, it says, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. Nothing held back. The fullness 
of God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. The incarnation. It speaks of His glory here. In verse 15 it says, He's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of the dead in verse 18. And all of this so that He would be preeminent in everything. Number one in all things. Lord of lords, King of kings. To be the firstborn has nothing to do with physical birth. It's a representation of, of, of status. To be the firstborn is the one who receives the inheritance. He is the one who will lead the family. He is the one who is in charge, will be put into charge. And all of this is through the Father to the Son given and so he's that firstborn position to receive all of the inheritance. And, and because he is the only son, he is the only one to receive the inheritance. And then what does he do? He embraces us as brothers and sisters to share his inheritance. But the glory belongs to him. All praise and honor is due his name. And he's preeminent in every way, even over in every way over creation as well. And why not? He is the creator. In the beginning was the word, and is again that passage in John goes on to say, and later on in John, all things were made through him and by him and for him. In Colossians 1.16, all things are created through Him and for Him. In heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. All the glory is due His name. And He is the Creator of all things. He's not only the Creator, but He's the Sustainer of all things. Very clearly here in verse 17, in Him all things hold together. In Hebrews chapter 1 it says, uh, uh, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Uh, we've talked about it many times, but the bottom line is, is that you know, we have a number of scientific theories probably about how things are all uh, are held together, but there's no doubting this one statement, and that is, is that everything moves to come apart. And it's by His Word, His very existence, that things are held together. He is what sustains the universe. He is what holds it together. It's the, the power of His Word. Think about how powerful His Word is if we see Him as the Creator. And then see him as a sustainer. How did how did things come into effect? By the word, the spoken word. How powerful is it? Holds all things together. And then it goes on to make a statement. Here we have God in the flesh. His deity spelled out. Glory do his name. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. 
And then we understand as we look here again in Colossians and we see it all through the Scripture, He is the Savior. Through Jesus Christ, all things are reconciled to God, according to Colossians 1.20. Heaven and earth. And the key for us here, making peace by the blood of the cross. I look at that and think of, of the song that we sang and the, the blood and tears flow mingling down and it's just a powerful song. To make keep peace through the blood of the cross. He came to us. He came to earth in the flesh to make peace through the cross for us. And not just for us, but all creation, because all creation has been tainted by sin, our sin. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, very, very common verses used frequently. As we look at uh, maybe Easter or, or the, 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 the and and uh, Good Friday and stuff like that, and here we have this picture: Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a man. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. The God of all creation in the flesh because he emptied himself. About this time, if I were wearing a jacket, I would take it and say, this jacket represents the, the, his glory and his, his authority and, and all things. And he takes it off and he lays it at the feet of the Father, so to speak, and comes to earth and totally rests in the Father. He says he doesn't speak anything, relate anything, or do anything that isn't through the Father. And he becomes vulnerable in every way. It says he's even, been, he's even tempted. And he's tempted beyond anything that we would be tempted to do. I've yet to be tempted uh, to, to turn a rock into bread. Satan has never encouraged me to do that. Why would he encourage Jesus to do that? Well, because that was something he knew Jesus could do. I haven't been tempted to go up into the, 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 the tallest pinnacles or, or, or buildings and, and leap off depending on angels to catch me at the, at the base of a, of a building. <laughs> but that was a thing that, that, was, that some people actually believed the Messiah would do. The Messiah would come into, into the, the leaping from the high spot of the temples uh, to, to, and the angels would escort him down and he would reveal himself as the Messiah. Satan thought, oh, here's a way. You can, just, you can just have Messiahship right now. Just do this. And people say, oh yeah, that group is right. There he is. Yeah. So Jesus was tempted. He suffered. 
He wept. The God of all creation humbled Himself. The Creator became part of His creation. And He made purification for sins. Again, making peace by the blood of the cross. You know, this is exactly what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. After he set the stage for what had happened through, through going back to the Old Testament and Scripture, and then he turned around and started speaking about the Jesus, the Christ, who's been crucified. So now we have not only the, the incarnate God in the flesh, the deity of the God in the flesh, the glory all do His name. Everything should be worshiping Him. We now share and, and see that He supplied the sacrifice through His death that we could stand before God. He pleased God for us. It says in, in verse 24 that God raised Him up uh, in Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. It's a powerful picture. What was defeated at the resurrection fully and completely? Death. The ultimate penalty for sin was taken care of. Kind of think about it. It's rather amazing to think that the that you know this is part of the stumbling block for for many people is, well, how can God die? Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons making up the Godhead, the one true God together, all of it together. The Son, the physical representation of God empties Himself, comes to earth, takes on the form of a man, a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. He chooses to. Jesus made it very clear. Nobody took His life. He laid it down. The perfect sacrifice. And so we look at all of this and we see the resurrection, His death, His incarnation, the glory that's due His name, and the fact that He should be exalted. Uh, he sits at the right hand of God. Ultimately, uh, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so all of this is tied into this picture, in a sense, almost like a snapshot, because it's not complete, it's not full. I've just given you a quick thumbnail sketch of why we should call Jesus Lord. And when we say Jesus is Lord, it has to encompass all of that. Anything short and, 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 and you're, you're missing some of the concept of, of why He is worthy of that name. He was worthy of it if He had never done any of it. He was worthy of it. 
And then we see what He did to embrace us and to bring us at peace before the throne of God. To give us that confidence that, that, that Hebrews speaks about in chapter 4, verse 16. That we can come before the throne of God with confidence to, to, to cry out for His mercy and His grace. That He is a restorer of the joy of salvation. <laughs> So when Paul says, confess Jesus as Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, believe that God raised Him from the dead, he's not just saying something quick and simple and easy. He's, he's, he's making a very full statement. And I just I, I want to make sure that you see it because I, it's, it's such, here it is, just two little verses and, and we look at it and we could go by so quickly over it. And I was amazed uh, this last uh, couple weeks in catching up a little bit of my reading. It slipped a little bit behind, but one commentator, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think devotes 120 pages to just these two verses. About five or six sermons. And I can see how that can happen because you start getting focused on each one of these areas that causes us to say Jesus is Lord. So I've chosen to give you a snapshot <laughs> and, 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 and so that you can embrace the full picture. And, and I don't know that we'll break it down much more than that for, for the purposes of our sermons, but I want you to, to see that. And so when we come to communion, all the more, we are saying, every time we share in communion, every time we come to the table, we are agreeing together and then separately, each of us before God, you alone are Lord. You alone can save me. You alone are worthy because you made peace with, with, with God through the cross. Your blood poured out for us. We are the bride of Christ pulled out of a sinful world. And his, he, he will accomplish His purpose. And He will complete what He has started in us. And we can rest confident in that. And, and so, again, the joy of our salvation to keep it fresh. That should be a, a constant prayer for us. And Psalm 51 is one of those psalms that you should you know, include frequently in your thinking. Of, Lord, you know, just restore the joy of my salvation. That my confession will be more than just a few words, but a way of life. So that people can look and say, I want what he's got. I want what she has. And they will come up and people do ask. Some of them will say, what's wrong with you? Others will say, you know, how can you be so happy in a time of? Or how can you have a sense of joy in the midst of, and you'll be able to share Jesus is Lord and tell them why. Let's share in communion this morning. And uh, certainly communion is a time of not only rejoicing in what God has done for us, but it's a time of self-examining. Psalm 51 perfectly for that. Uh, Lord, see my heart. Lord, the sins that I have. And it's not unreasonable sometimes to ask God to break our heart over our sins. Because sometimes we're just too 
prideful or too busy or, or we just don't think it's that big of a deal. And uh, so just asking God to do that so that we can be before Him and, and worship Him and, and have the full joy of our salvation. Ask the ushers to come forward uh, to uh, pass the communion out. Hold the emblems until we've all been served and we'll share together.
need you, Jesus. I need clean hands. I can't. You can. Pretty powerful statement in a few little phrases, simple words. And I thought about clean hands, and it, I, bear with me because the thought crossed my mind that one of the things that, you know, that we're encouraged to do, and we tell all our little kids to do today now, frequently do what? Wash your hands so that we don't do what? Spread germs that might harm you. Okay, and in the context of spiritual washing, I can't. There's no place I can go. You know, to, to, to clean my hands, no matter how many bowls of water I use to clean my soul, I can't do it. But when I come before Christ, I can't, He can. And it's because He has pleased God for us through the cross. And at communion, we share that very clearly because we follow what He gave to the disciples on the night that He was betrayed. Where he took the bread and after giving thanks and breaking and passing it to the disciples, he said, this is my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup of wine and spoke to them a picture that we would be asked to use and to honor him and to thank him until he returns. He said, this cup is my blood poured out for you to purchase the covenant. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, he said. Father, again, with thanksgiving in our hearts, we come. And we do ask, Lord, that you would break us over our sins. Cause us to come to your throne and to, and to cry out. And then know with confidence that as we cry out with a broken heart, Lord, and even that coming from, from you giving us the ability to do it. I guess I should even ask, Lord, cause us to have a broken heart over our sins. And that as we cry out with, to you and, and ask for forgiveness, we can have the confidence that David had as he wrote Psalm 40. And he said that he cries out from the miry clay or the miry pit. And, and you hear his cry. And you, you take him out and you set him on the rock. And praise has come from his mouth to declare your glory. Cause that to be real in our lives daily, Lord. To be repentant, to be broken, and to be lifted up and with confidence. See our salvation and declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. And believe with confidence that you raised him from the dead and, and, and that he has satisfied all that is necessary through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.